So that's our question this morning. What is God like? Like what A.W. Tozer is saying here is that essentially like every other issue is downstream from this question. Every other issue is downstream from the question as to what God is like, what it means to be human, what a life well lived looks like, how we should think about the world, like the shape of our hopes and longings, the reason that we wake up in the morning is downstream from our answer to this question, what is God like? And actually, most people in the world and even our country believe in some sort of God. But as the world kind of increasingly becomes more aware of itself, we're becoming increasingly globalized, more diverse and complex. Never before are we seeing so many, many answers to the most basic fundamental question. And so there's all sorts of things that are offered to us as to an, an answer to that question as to what God this is anyway. Because of the sort of overconnected and overly aware nature of social media, we are more sort of uh, given more answers as to the fundamental questions than any sorts of people who have ever lived in the history of ever. And so what is God like? While it might seem like an easy answer on the surface, it's actually kind of tricky. Is God like indifferent to our pain and suffering? Is he a God that is distant and cold and disinterested? Is he like a clockmaker sort of God who sort of set the universe into motion? At the beginning of history, he decided this is how creation is going to be, and he has since kind of evacuated the premises. And so creation is just kind of running and doing its deal, and God is wherever God is, far away, removed, and disinterested. Is that the sort of God that this is? Or is God a God eager to smite rebels? Is he a God who's capricious and violent, malevolent? A God who's kind of like us, moody and kind of subject to emotions, just kind of writ large and really powerful like the ancient Greeks believed. Is that what God is like? Or is God like Allah, who commands war against those who do not agree with their teachings, who do not submit to Allah? Is this what God is like, or is God like something else? Maybe you're here today, and you consider yourself an atheist or an agnostic, or I have a friend who calls calls himself an apatheist, just doesn't really care about the answer to that question. Maybe that's where you are today. And like my friend Joe, I would imagine that in large part, even beneath your questions as to whether or not God is believable, whether or not God is rational, is a question as to what sort of God this is anyway. And so maybe for you, it's not that you don't believe in God, it's that you don't believe in those gods. And so what do we say to that? How do we answer that question? What is God like? We'll take a look at John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. If you have a copy of the scriptures, go ahead and turn there. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Now, the Gospel of John is a book that's written all about Jesus. And John was one of Jesus' friends. And John writes the story of, the, of Jesus in the Gospel of John with, this, with the sole, like, express purpose of belief in Jesus. He says in chapter 1, I write this book so that you will believe in Jesus. And this is how he begins this book. He says this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. All right, so the book opens here, like not at the beginning, but the beginning of the beginning, like prior to the beginning. And we're actually given this incredibly lofty vision of the Word, whoever the Word is. John calls this individual the Word and tells us four things about the Word. The first thing that he tells us about the Word is that the Word was there in the beginning. He says it twice, actually, in verses 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word. Verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. 
Now, when you start talking about in the beginning, that's going to sound really familiar to Jewish ears, because how does Genesis 1-1 open? In the beginning. All right, so John is kind of deliberately tying a line, like connecting some dots here between the opening of his gospel and the opening of the story of Genesis, in the beginning. So in the beginning, Genesis tells us there was God, and God spoke. God created. And then we're told in John 1-1, in the beginning was the Word. All right, so whoever the Word is, he's there in the beginning. The second thing that we're told is that the Word was with God. So again, the Word was there in the beginning with God, present with God somehow, some way at the beginning. And then this is where the ante is upped a little bit. Because the third thing that he tells us about the Word is that the Word was God. Okay. So whoever the Word is, we've kind of got this withness and wasness with God. That's not English, but we're going to make it work this morning. The wasness and the withness. That the word is both with God and somehow the word actually is God. And there's some tension here, right, between the wasness and the withness, right? There's some tension here. Like, how can the word, whoever the word is, how can the word be both with God and be God? How do we sort this out? The Bible clearly affirms the oneness of God. You know, Deuteronomy chapter 6 is called the Shema. The nation of Israel would recite this again and again and again. And what does it say? The Lord our God is one. All right, so the Bible is really clear that God is one. But the New Testament sort of unfolds this and helps us to see the nature of this oneness when it tells us that there is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is where the church gets the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, how do we maintain both the withness and the, one, the, the wasness? Now, I can't unpack all of that for you this second because, well, 2,000 years of church history has been sort of sorting this out. But it's actually really helpful to think about it in this way. All right, so 1 John chapter 4 tells us that God is what? God is love. Now, prior to creation, who was God loving? Well, the answer is himself. The Father, specifically, was loving the Son. The Father was loving the Son in the fellowship of the Spirit. And the way Christians have always kind of reasoned this out is to say that there are three distinct persons— but all three are one God. So before the beginning, the beginning of the beginning of the beginning, since from before time began, the Father has been loving the Son. The Word has been with God. The Word is God, and the Word has been loving God, and God has been loving the Word. The Father has been loving the Son since always. And the way that the Nicene Creed, the video at the beginning of this uh, worship gathering, says it is that the Son is God from God, Light from light, true God of true God, begotten, not made, of one being with God. All right, so again, I, the doctrine of the Trinity, brain curves, I understand. That's not a, a small thing to discuss. And I would actually highly recommend this book. I think I have a picture of it on the screen. I think so. I think I sent it. Yes. All right, so if you are, if you are ever interested in sort of understanding more a bit about the doctrine of the Trinity, I cannot recommend this book enough to you. It's called Delighting in the Trinity by a guy named Michael Reeves. The point that he kind of makes in the book is that when we think about the doctrine of the Trinity, we kind of think about it as like the iTunes user agreement where it's like, I don't understand it, I'm not going to read it, but I agree to it because I'm supposed to, right? What he does in this book is show how the doctrine of the Trinity is actually like gloriously foundational to the Christian faith. I cannot recommend it highly enough to you. And he's going to, and I would spend more time explaining this, but he does it so much better than I ever could. So I would defer to Michael Reeves. All right, so we're told three things about the word. That the word was there in the beginning, the word was with God, the word was God, 
And then here's the fourth thing that John tells us about the word. That all things were made through him. All things were made through him. Then he says it negatively there in verse 3. That without him was not anything that was made, made. All right, so the word, who is God, who is also with God, who's present in creation, is actually the one through whom all things are made. All right, again, so whoever the word is, the word was present and active in creation. And this is really important, like almost nearly impossible to overstate. Because there's some folks who carry the title of Christian who actually say that the word, while you know divine and special and, and, and really fantastic, is ultimately sort of a JV God. That kind of from, from these scriptures would say that the word isn't God in, in terms of like capital G, but the word is a God, kind of like a lowercase g. That he's sort of a, a JV God. Right, um, folks like Jehovah's Witnesses would make this argument from these scriptures that that Jesus, the Word, is not you know God of God. He's 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 like he's God in in terms of like being greater than us and greater than the angels, but he's not God of God. So what do we say to that? Well, actually, this line of thinking is not new because in the fourth century, a guy named Arius was punched in the face by Saint Nicholas for suggesting these very same things. Did you know that that Saint Nicholas? punched a heretic in the face in the fourth century. So if you need like more reasoning to make Santa awesome to your children, <laughs> there you go. So Arians or folks like Jehovah's Witnesses, they would say that Jesus, the word, is a top dog, but he's not God of God, that ultimately he's a created being, that the word is ultimately created. Again, he's, he's great, he's greater than us, like deserving of worship, but ultimately a created being. That there was a time when the word was not, in other words. A time when the word had to have been made. Now, they point to this passage and say that the Greeks suggest that the proper interpretation is that the word was a God, not that the word is God. And true story, by the way, when I was typing these sentences at Starbucks, this girl sat down next to me and she said, I saw your Bible, are you a Christian? And on her name tag it said, Sarah, Jehovah's Witnesses. Which then, so we, I was like, actually, I'm writing a sermon about why you guys are not Christians. <laughs> so um, there it was. And we had coffee together. I've not seen her since. So now there's good Greek reasons for rejecting their translation of John 1. But actually, you don't have to go to the Greek to do that. Because look again at verse 3. In verse 3, there's two categories given. In John 1, verse 3. He says that everything that exists fits into one of two categories. Category 1 is what? Everything that was made. Category two is what? Everything that was not made. All right, thought experiment. Trees. Which category do trees fall into? Made or not made? Made. Okay, second thought experiment. Um, I don't know. Uh, Venezuela. Does it fall into made or not made? Made. Okay, the word. Does the word fall into the category of made or not made? Not made. And the, the reason is, is we're told that everything that was made was made by the word right? So if we were to say that the word was made, well, that would be nonsense because the word can't make himself. Therefore, we have to conclude that the word was not made, right? So if you ever find yourself approached by a Sarah in a Starbucks, you can open up John 1.3 and say, actually, we don't need to talk about Greek because John 1.3 is really clear that the word was not made and that everything that was made comes from the word. Now, let's surface for a second. All right, let's take a deep breath. Everybody good? Okay. So Christians from the New Testament on have said that Jesus, who is the Word, 
is very God of very God, fully divine, not JV, not second fiddle to the Father, but the Son is just as much God as the Father, eternally begotten, not made. But here's what I've always wondered about John 1. Why does John tell us that it's the Word? In verse 14, he says that this is the Son. Why didn't John start with, in the beginning was the Son, and the Son was with God? Or in verse 16, he tells us it's Jesus Christ. Spoiler alert, I'm talking about Jesus of Nazareth. Why doesn't he just say, in the beginning was Jesus? Like, it seems like that would have been a lot clearer, a lot more simple. Everyone knows where this is headed. Like, why not just kind of put your cards on the table at the beginning? So what is John doing with this designation of the word? Now, I grew up with a guy named John Adams, not the president John Adams, but another John Adams. They actually called him Prez in in high school and college. Now, John is uh, two years older than me. He was the same age as my older brother, and he was a huge jerk in high school. Like he, was, he was a junior in our high school and in our youth group when I was a freshman, and he and I were at each other's throats constantly. We just hated one another. John was just a huge jerk in my mind, and I was just a lame freshman kid, the little brother of one of his peers in his mind. Now, this one specific occasion, I remember the dynamic of our relationship changed dramatically one Friday evening. I think it was towards the end of Christmas break. It was one Friday evening. My brother had a church basketball game. I was there cheering my brother on. John happened to be there. And as we're at this basketball game, I kind of have this realization. I had, I had recently received a drum set for Christmas, and I was really into this band called Sum 41. Is that, does anybody remember that? Sum 41? And in particular, this one song called Fat Lip. All right, so I had devoted, I had my little CD player and I would put it on my lap, and I, and I put in my headphones, and I would listen to Fat Lip that was burned from a friend who lived down the street from me, and I would practice playing Fat Lip on the drums. And I had this realization, because I remember that John, John at Prez, that, that friend of mine, I remember that he played guitar. And I actually remember him in passing one time saying how much he liked Sum 41. And so I approached John, and I was like, John, we got our things, I know, but I got a drum set for Christmas, and it kind of gets old just playing with the CD. Would you ever be interested in coming and, I don't know, playing Sum 41 with me? And John was like, Sum 40, like, dude, that's my love language. Sum 41, fat love. I would, I would love to come jam with you. And so from that point on, for the rest of that Christmas break, almost every single day, John would come to my parents' basement, and we would play Sum 41 together. And you know what happened to John? John was in my wedding, and I was in John's wedding, and John and I are going camping together in just a couple of weeks in Alabama because John and I became best friends through this experience, through this disclosure that I like Sum 41 and I played music and his disclosure that he felt the same way about Sum 41. And that's what speech does, right? That's what exchanging words do. It's self-disclosure. When you speak, you open yourself to others and invite others back in. That's exactly what speech is. And so why the word? Why does John use this particular designation to describe Jesus? It's because John wants us to see Jesus as God's self disclosure. Jesus is the Father's speech to us, where the Father unveils all that he is. Jesus says this in in John 14, this great moment in John 14, verse 8. One of the disciples, Philip, comes up to Jesus and he says, very spiritually, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus responds to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Philip, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. 
How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. So what is God like? The Christian answer is Jesus. Jesus is God's word to us, where God discloses all that he is to us. Theologian Thomas Torrance said it this way. He says, there is in fact no God behind the back of Jesus, no act of God other than the act of Jesus, no God but the God we see and meet in him. Jesus Christ is the open heart of God, the very love and life of God poured out to redeem humankind, the mighty hand and power of God stretched out to heal and save sinners. Isn't that kind of how we think about it sometimes, that there's, you have Jesus, and then there's the God who's behind Jesus. Jesus is the nice one. He's the one that came to us. He's the one that weeps at Lazarus' funeral. Jesus is the one who's, who's sweet and kind and cuddles the, the lambs and things. And then you have the Father who's behind Jesus, who's just kind of chomping at the bit. He's a, it's kind of a bait-and-switch sort of deal, you, Trojan horse sort of thing. Like, you, you kind of buy into Jesus, and then you get the Father, the Father, who's the angry, mean one. Actually, what Jesus tells us is, what you see of me what you see in me, the things that the characteristics you see me embodying, that's God. That's the Father. God reveals all that he is to us in Christ. So Jesus is not a prophet pointing to something outside of himself. He's not a teacher pointing to someone outside of himself. Jesus says, it's me. Come to me and you come to the Father. Jesus is God's fullest communication of himself. So Jesus embodies, epitomizes, expresses, manifests, personifies, and makes concrete for us all that God is. And in John 1, John ends the prologue by saying this. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. In verse 18, don't miss this, he says, no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, but he has made him known. Speaking of Jesus. No one has ever seen God. No one has ever seen God except in Christ. The word has made him known. In the word, God speaks to us. One of the reasons it's so important for us to be nitpicky about John 1, 1 through 3, is that what we're preserving is that statement that I just said. It's important for us to preserve the full divinity of Jesus because if Jesus isn't God fully, he cannot be God's communication to us fully. He's just kind of another prophet kind of pointing to another way that he suspects that God is. So then who does Jesus reveal God to be? What sort of things do we see about God through Jesus in the Gospel of John? What happens in John chapter 2? Do you remember the first miracle? In John's gospel, Jesus goes to a wedding, and the worst-case scenario happens. They run out of wine. And so what does Jesus do? Jesus turns water into wine, and it's better wine. It's the best wine. This is a Jesus who believes in joy and feasting and fellowship and pleasure. What happens in John chapter 3? Well, a doubter comes to Jesus and says, I'm, I'm not so sure about you. And Jesus says, let's stay up all night and talk about this. Let's talk about this. Let's reason together, Nicodemus. What happens in John chapter 4? 
In the middle of the day, Jesus goes to this well and sees a woman there, a Samaritan woman, who is ostracized and marginalized, a woman who goes to the well in the heat of the day so that she doesn't have to interact with anyone. What does Jesus do? He goes to her, says, I know that you've had five husbands and you're working on your sixth, but I know you and I love you and I desire to to be in relationship with you anyway. That's the sort of God that Jesus reveals God to be. What happens in John chapter 5? Well, we're told that Jesus walks into a multitude of invalids. It says that they're blind, they're lame, and they're paralytics. And in fact, there's a guy there who's been an invalid for 38 years. And what does Jesus do? He heals him. Much to the chagrin of the religious leaders, Jesus heals this guy on the Sabbath. Then in John chapter 11, what happens? Jesus catches wind that his friend Lazarus has died, and Jesus weeps. His heart breaks over the death of his friend, and he speaks him back to life. John chapter 12, a woman named Mary comes to Jesus and wastes her, her expensive ointment on Jesus. And Jesus says, let it happen because she understands who and what I am. And then at the climax of the gospel, in John chapter 14, Jesus says, this is the moment of my unveiling. What happens? He's crucified. And in the crucifixion, we're told that all that God is, is unveiled for us. In the crucifixion, in Jesus' death, we see what God is like. We see that God is a God of the cross. Jesus unveils God. He's glorified and his divine magnificence is perfectly expressed in a God who judges sin and forgives sinners in Christ. In the cross, we see that God is not indifferent to human suffering. We see that he's not indifferent to evil. We see that God is not cold, we see that he is not cold and distant and removed from us. Rather, God is very much a God who brings about just judgment on evil. But we also see that this is a God who doesn't wipe out rebels. A God who provides a sacrifice so that we, the sinners that we are, would never know condemnation, but would rather know God's smile forever. This is the sort of God that Jesus reveals God to be. The God of the cross. The God who weeps at death. The God who bears our sin and suffering for us on our behalf. The God who receives Mary and the woman at the well, who dialogues with Nicodemus, who turns water into wine at a wedding. This is the sort of God that Jesus reveals him to be. So maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. I would be really curious how all of this sounds to you. It probably sounds like either the most ridiculous thing that you've ever heard or the best news that you can imagine. A British poet, a guy named Lord Byron, said, "If uh, it, how did he say it? If God is not like Jesus, he should be. And praise the Lord, that's, that's exactly the case for us. What I'd say to you, if you're here this morning and you don't believe, talk with the pastors here. Talk with the leadership here. Bring your questions to them. Ask them to explain these things further. Pick up the Gospel of John and see exactly what sort of God this is. And maybe compare the way that you think of God or the God that you think you don't believe in. Compare that God with the God that Jesus reveals him to be in the Gospel of John. That's how I would encourage you this week. Maybe you're here this morning and you're a Christian. What I'd say to you is that whenever we encounter this God again, the only appropriate response, the, the, the first gut impulse of the Christian is gratitude. 
what sort of God is this who would come to me and bear my judgment on my behalf so that I could be in relationship with him forever? What sort of God is this? What wondrous love is this? Respond with gratitude and singing. In the next few moments, I'm going to pray. Um, and after I pray, we're going to do exactly that. We're going to sing to the God, the God of the cross, the God that Jesus has revealed to us and all of his coming and going and dying for us. And I would invite you to sing and lift your hearts up to the word who was God, who, who, who is God, who was with God, through whom all things were made. Let's pray. Father, we come to you by the blood of Christ. We come and we, we make our petitions to you because Christ has come to us. The scripture tells us that we are united to Christ and made joint heirs with Christ. And, and because of this, you teach us to pray our Father in heaven. We, we have now been given the Son's access to the Father because the Son came to us. And this is not on the basis of anything that we could do, not on the basis of any kind of righteousness threshold that we could cross, not on the, on the basis of any sort of works that we could drum up to get you to like us. It is totally on the basis of your free grace and mercy to us. And so we come with hearts of humility and gratitude. We come to you bumfuzzled that you would even consider us, that you would even do this for us, that you would send your son to us to redeem us to yourself. And I pray that out of that humility and gratitude and bumfuzzledness, we would rejoice in you. I pray this morning for any folks who are here who do not believe, I pray that they would, they would have their preconceived notions of who this God is challenged by Jesus. And I pray that your spirit would open their eyes to, to, to see the, the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of the good news of a God who dies on the cross for his people. I pray that you'd be lifted high in these next few moments, that you would stir our hearts, and that we, you would cultivate within us a deeper affection for you and for your son. We pray these things in his name.